Welcome to the latest episode of Season 2 of Football Uncovered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn and Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. Heard about extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season, we're going inside eight more Premier League clubs, as well as having two special episodes. One about life after the Premier League, and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. I'm your host, Will Brazier, and with me every episode, of course, it's Nick Harris from Sporting Intel. Nick, are you well? I'm good, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. We have got a real Everton expert with us. Yes, obviously, it's not just me and Nick. Each week, we are joined by a special guest, someone that's either a fan of the club or has followed them very closely and knows all the inside stories. As well as sharing all the usual inside stories about the club, we'll be, of course, looking at the owners of the club, how the current owners came to be there and where they've taken the club so far, but also what's next. Today, we're here to talk about Everton, who have more English top flight titles, nine, than any other club apart from Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal. Okay, so the last one was in 1986-87 and their last major trophy was in 1995, but they are a big club and now have one of the most successful managers of all time, Carlo Ancelotti. I mean, it's not just Ancelotti, one of the greatest coaches, brilliant Champions League success and all these other stuff, but they've got a rich owner in Farhad Mashiri and a richer, even richer sponsor in Alisher Usmanov, who was formerly the co-owner of Arsenal. So they really should be set up. Today's guest is James Corbett. James, how are you? And just how did you come to be an Everton fan? I didn't have any choice in the matter. My family have been following the club since the 19th century. Um, my eldest son is a sixth generation season ticket holder. I work as a sports business correspondent for the website offthepitch.com, but I've also written three books about Everton, a club that I grew up with and been fascinated with ever since. I've also collaborated with four former Everton players who are all among the club's 10 millennium giants um, on their autobiographies. So Bob Latchford, who was uh, also played for your club, Birmingham, Neville Southall, uh, Howard Kendall, the club's most successful ever manager, and Dave Hickson, uh, a 1950s football legend. Nick, you've also got connections to Everton. What are those? Not really, not really connections, but I did also help a former Everton footballer write a book. Um, he was in prison at the time. Um, ah. His name is Mark Ward, and he was a tricky winger uh, who started at Everton and got released. He made his name with West Ham in the 80s um, alongside Frank McAvenny, who was uh, almost as an equally a colourful character as Mark. Mark played for Man City and then went back to Everton in the mid-90s. Um, and he was sent to prison for eight years in 2005 for his role in a, a drug cartel. He had a minor role. He was sort of um, rented the stash house for the cartel so that his name was on the lease so that when the place got raided, legally anything in the property was his responsibility. Obviously, he couldn't tell the police or anyone who else he was working with because that would have made him a grass and bad things happen to grasses in drug cartels. So he went to Walton Jail. Um, I went to see him in Walton Jail for a big feature for The Independent and one of the stranger but more fascinating um, times as a journalist. I mean, I had three cavity checks on the way from the waiting room to the visitor room um, wow. and, and even be, before you set off on that journey you have to take off your shoes uh, you, you were allowed one layer of clothing pair of trousers and a shirt I had to take off my jumper didn't have a pen didn't have a tape recorder didn't have any coins um, and I sat down next to Mark he was 
sitting at a desk where he's not allowed to move from. I'm on the other side. Talked to him for an hour. Anyway, he went on to write a book about his extraordinary life and, and he'd said he'd give me an interview if I helped him structure his book. Um, and that's what happened. He, he went on to write the book by hand on yellow prism notepaper. He'd send me um, a chapter at a time. And when he got a publisher, uh, somebody who knew from his West Ham days, he helped him with it as well. But there was there's a brilliant chapter called Shooting the Pope. I mean, <laughs> these are different eras when football or Christmas parties could still happen without, you know, phone cameras and and tabloid exposes, but in this chapter, Shooting the Pope, he tells how it was Christmas fancy dress party at Everton. Barry Horn, we all remember Barry Horn. He came dressed um, as the Pope. And um, Mark, obviously he had had a few drinks. He ended up uh, nicking a gun from somebody at the party he didn't know who was dressed as John Wayne. And he didn't know that the gun that he'd taken from this person who was of dubious sort of uh, provenance was a real gun um, and it was loaded now it didn't have a live bullet in it but it had around it it was a blank bullet and um, he was having a joke with Barry Horn at, at the bar saying like you know if you don't buy me a pint I'm going to shoot you whatever anyway he ended up pulling the trigger and shooting Barry Horn in the chest at close range with a real bullet albeit a blank and there was a massive bang the robes went you know were in flames Barry Horn was flung backwards and had a massive bruise in his chest and this was sort of the normal sort of rough and tumble of an Everton Christmas party in the Bloody 80s hell. or whatever well speaking on that as well James obviously you helped Neville Southall write his book um I mean that's quite a big anecdote to top but what an extraordinary man for a biography to write for well yeah he was he was my hero growing up and suddenly completely out of the blue I was I was approached by an intermediary uh, who I met in McDonald's on County Road in Walton just by the ground <laughs> it was a guy called Fat Les and he said um I'm representing Neville Southall he wants you to write his book and I was like, all right, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> anyway, I got to um, I got to meet Neville. There was a meeting set up at a, at a service station on the M25, and <laughs> I, I didn't think he was going to turn up. I just I just thought somebody, a bit of a blagger. You had to meet Fat Les and Neville at a service station? Yes. Okay. Anyway, Neville Southall turns up at the service station in the middle of nowhere, and um, he said, yeah, I've read your book, I read loads of books. I really like it. I've written a history of Everson. Really like it. Can you write can you write my book? And I was like, okay. So for about six months I was living in um southeast London at the time. I, I Neville was living in near Deal in Kent. I would drive down every Monday or Tuesday morning and just sit in Neville's living room while he'd just talk at me and we'd drink loads of tea. And um, I'd go home and write it up. And a year or so later, we had a best-selling book called The Bin Man Chronicles. And we would go all over the place promoting this. We went all over the Northwest. We did events at the Welsh Centre in London and all over Wales to do it. Um, and Neville is just one of the most funny people you'll ever meet. He's got a very, very dry sense of humour. So we were in a, a bookshop in Abergavenny, out of season Abergavenny. <laughs> Abergavenny has sort of got a reputation as a foodie capital and, you know, a bit of it posh because it, it, it's close to Hay on Lime. But actually, it's a bit like Royston Vasey, um, <laughs> full of oddballs. So we were doing this book signing. I don't think many people had turned up. And one of the local oddballs turned up and sort of eyeing Neville and says, 
Why are you doing a book signing? You're, you're not that famous. I don't even know who you are. And Neville's like, well, you know, it's my autobiography, but, you know, I write with a pen name. I write novels. <laughs> but I don't like to use my real name because, you know, I don't like the attention. And this fellow was sucked in by him. And Neville, and he says, what sort of books do you write? And Neville goes, well, you know, fantasy books. You know, they made a few films of them, but, you know, I don't like the attention. He said, what's your pen name? Neville reaches on a bookshop behind him and he goes, J.K. Rowling. <laughs> <laughs> and this oddball kept coming back and you could see him in the window pointing at Neville. So I was like, it's J.K. Rowling over there. <laughs> <laughs> and the Bin Man Chronicles is a great read and Neville is a great follow as well. He's a really interesting guy, isn't he? He's very, oh, he's very... Brilliant. They should be building a statue of him, not just for his incredible achievements. I mean, he really is Everton's greatest living footballer, but not just for his football achievements, but because of everything else he does. You know, he retrains as a teacher, but he's not just any teacher. He works with kids who've been kicked out of school. You know, he campaigns on all sorts of justice issues, trans rights issues, stuff you would never, ever, ever associate with a footballer. Um, he's brilliant. A great, great man. Well, should we start with Everton in the 21st century? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's go back to uh, the millennium, New Year's Eve 1999, and uh, theatrical empresario and lifelong Everton fan, I think he's lifelong Everton fan, Bill Kenwright, uh, leads a consortium that buys the club from uh, the unpopular ex-Tranmere chairman, Peter Johnson. James, what were you as a fan thinking about Kenwright coming in at that point and what did you all hope for and expect? So Peter Johnson had taken over the club in 1994. Um, Everton had been run by the Moores family, obviously, you know, incredibly wealthy, uh, you know, ran the pools and the Littlewood shopping chain and employed half of Merseyside. I, I, I worked for them at one stage. Um, but John Moores had passed away in 93 and there was a bit of a power vacuum and his children didn't want to keep running the club. So it went for sale. Peter Johnson, who was Tramier chairman at the time and a local businessman, in many ways in the model of John Moores, you know, he, he made good selling hampers and he was into logistics and also frozen food. And he took over the club um, and had started to inject quite a lot of money into it. He bought Andre Konchelskis as an example. In 95 from Man United just after Everton won the FA Cup and Gary Speed and Nick Barnby. We spent quite a lot of money, but there was never any real grand plan or strategy. Johnson never even had a chief executive at Everton. It was sort of run on a sort of ad hoc, slightly farcical basis. And Everton were involved in several relegation battles and the fans turned against Johnson and it was quite nasty. Johnson withdrew his money from the club and there were serious questions about Everton's future. So when Bill Kenwright came in with his consortium, he was viewed as you know one of our own and restoring a bit of interest and love into what had become an unloved institution by its owner, Peter Johnson. And um, the first three seasons of his ownership were pretty... Okay, mediocre, Everton were 13th, 16th, 15th, all under Walter Smith. That's fine. Walter's a good guy. But March 2002, I guess the start of something good, really, a really solid, solid era with the appointment of David Moyes as manager. Well, yeah, I mean, you say it was okay under Walter Smith. I don't think finishing 15th or 17th is ever going to be okay. No, I'm trying to be kind. I like Walter. 
I mean, you weren't you weren't flirting too closely with relegation. No, they weren't. And, and you know, Walter deserves some credit because it was still very unstable at the time. You know, there were lots of players on big contracts. Yeah, people weren't doing anything. You know, people at Slaven Village. Duncan Ferguson was another one, although he was, um, you know, he was he was quite badly injured. Um, Club legend, now assistant manager. Yeah, that's a podcast in its own. <laughs> Yeah, so it was sort of okay. Walter Walter was a stabilising influence, but Everton weren't really going anywhere. And David Moyes came in in March 2002. He still had red hair. <laughs> Bright young thing of football managers at the time. Preston, was it from Preston? Preston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he really re-energised Everton. I mean, Everton, in the 2002-2003 season, Everton were in the top four for... First 33, 34 games. Right. And they slipped away at the end and, and, and finished seventh. But given what had happened over previous seasons, um, you know, there was real fresh impetus and hope coming into the club. And of course, we had Wayne Rooney, who was greatest English footballer of his generation, you know, 16 year old Rooney, who really electrified things at times. Yeah. I mean, you look at, he was there 11 years more. He was whipped forward too fast, but seventh that first season, having been in the top four. Bit of a dip season, 17th, but then fourth, 11th, sixth, fifth, fifth, eighth, seventh, seventh, sixth. That's a pretty good record given the resources that Everton had um, through that period of time when you are dealing with the Abramovich era starting uh, pretty much the season after he came in and later on the Mansour era and the established giants of Manchester United and Liverpool and Arsenal. Resources against attainment, it was a very, very solid period, wasn't it? Oh, it was more than solid. It was very, very good. He continually punched above his weight and never really had any money. You know, there was a bit of money after Rooney came in and then there was a bit of money when Robert Earl bought into the club in, in 2006. But, you know, he was qualified for Europe and then literally given nothing. You know, he was he was bringing in loan signings. Um, he brought in this striker from Argentina called Dennis Strapolazzi, who I've never seen a player, player of such heart, but he had the technique of a non-league player. And, you know, he's meant to be playing in, in a side that's challenging for Europe. Um, but Moyes just about did it. And I think before we started recording, we talked about Leicester City. I think if he'd have had a season where the stars aligned and he had somebody who could bring in the goals, which he never really had in the way that Leicester did with Jamie Vardy, then Everton could have definitely challenged for the title. You know, they had some really, really good players. Yeah. At the time. They just lacked that bit of quality. And then towards the end of his time, the dynamics started to really change after Manchester City um, were taken over by Sheikh Mansour, um, more so even than when Abramovich came over. You know, City were poaching our best players. They were inflating the transfer market. Moyes, for instance, had a deal to sign Ellen Dzeko for, I think, 11 million quid. And he ended up going to Man City for 28 million quid, yeah. which tells you everything you need to know about how the transfer market had become distorted. And Everton were just not able to compete in that. Yeah. So he completed minor miracles, I would say, in those years that he finished fifth and sixth. I think he finished fifth three times. Um, you know, he did. He did very, very well. At the same time, you know, 
people argue we should have done better. You know, they, they made the FA Cup final in 2009, semi-finals in 2012. They should have probably done better in the old UEFA Cup. There was one season where they beat the eventual winners, Zenit. Um, That's the 7-8 season when Zenit beat Glasgow Rangers in the final. Um, and that's when Andre Arshavan sort of announced himself on the yes. to a lot of people. Yes, and what an exciting player he was. But when Everson played them at Goodison, they totally outplayed Zenit. And yeah. they played Fiorentina in the round of 16 and went out on penalties. And then you see Rangers get to the final. You know, Everson really should have and won something that season but they didn't that first season uh, in his appointment I guess there's two questions for, for you James one is as a fan then you've obviously got fond memories of the Moyes era that, that it was actually a good time not just an okay time but a good time which is good I mean that's if you've got fond memories of that, that time but if being good is finishing fifth and sixth kind of what is the ceiling to your expectations as a fan I mean this is something we dealt with in a Southampton episode What what is your ceiling are you happy to be fifth and sixth and enjoying good football? And secondly, uh, using the example of the proposed move to the Kingsdock Stadium in the 2-3 season, which fell through as Everton failed to raise the money, isn't it sort of like, well, unless you're going to have lots of money, you, you're going to have to do with being just okay? No, I don't think so. I think what I liked about Moyes was that he was authentic and his teams were authentic and he bought astutely at a time when oligarchs' money was starting to come in. You know, Everson have Hammers Rodriguez playing for them now. Yeah. As good as he sometimes is. I will never feel the same way about Hammers as I did about Leon Osman or Tim Kane. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can laugh about that, but, you know, they were players that were developed by the club. And there was something good about supporting a side that didn't have loads of money and would develop these players over over years and, and bring them in from nowhere. Mikel Arteta was another one. Yeah. Phil Dragielka and Leighton Baines. Yeah. Know. But I mean, um, but Tim Cahill, he really was a force of nature, wasn't he? I mean, he was an incredibly important player for Everton. He came from Millwall. Yeah. And, you know, he was transformed. Obviously, he was playing well to get the, the move to Everton, but he was a force of nature. Very, very important player. Yeah. I mean, look, Technically, there have been many, many better players for Everson, but we played with heart and spirit every single game and gave everything. And, you know, he was he was a very good player. He played in, I think, four World Cups and scored in all of them. You know, nobody else in the club's history has done that. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a lot to like from, you know, a lot of players, Cahill being just one of them. Yeah. And yeah, he was a force of nature. But... You know, at the same time, he's never going to score or create 20 goals a season. He was never that sort of transformative player who's going to propel you from mid-table into the Champions League places. Right, well, listen, I mean, so then we've already talked about those years of 7 to 13, Moyes repeatedly punching them above their weight, finishing fifth and qualifying for Europe. Um Falling short, maybe, but, um you know, a good period for the club. But also, you it was just this ad nauseum stuff in the background about a new stadium that already been won, we talked about earlier, but then there's farcical attempts to move to a new out-of-town stadium in Kirkby. I mean, how much was the whole stadium issue? And obviously we'll talk about it now because there's now another stadium, a new stadium is still a live issue today. I mean, 
How much of a frustration of that is a fan? How much do you want there to be a new stadium? I mean, and how much do you actually like Goodison Park? I love Goodison Park. Exactly. I mean, it's a great stadium, isn't it? It's a, it's a great football stadium. It's a working class area and, you know, you have the narrow streets. It's very atmospheric. But at the same time, it's not in keeping with 21st century fans' expectations of what a stadium should be like. You know, there's loads of obstructive views. If you go in the lower Bullens, where some of the away fans sit, or towards the back of the Gladys Street, it's like watching a game through a letterbox. Press box is a nightmare. I've never actually sat in the press box, although that's that's in the nice part of the stadium. I used to have a season ticket near there. It's just there's very, very little room. You know, there's sort of six, eight people on a row that could comfortably hold three or four. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not in keeping with our expectations of what a football stadium should be. There's nowhere for corporate hospitality, really. You know, there's some um, executive boxes that were built, I think, in 1981. Right. And there's only 11 of them. Right. In the stadium. You know, you can trust that someone like Tottenham. Yeah. Even White Hart Lane used to have an end that was effectively executive boxes. Yeah. Everton don't have that. And their ticketing revenues are correspondingly low. So they've always needed needed something to move on a level and also to make them more attractive, I suppose, to to overseas investors. You know, one of the stories is that Sheikh Mansour chose Manchester City over Everton because it had the stadium from the Commonwealth Games. Now that could just be one of those urban myths, but yeah. I think there's probably some truth in the fact that you know a club of a ready-made stadium is going to be more attractive to an, uh, an overseas investor. What about the Kirkby Stadium then? What happened there? Why was it so farcical? Well, Kirkby's a new town on the outskirts of Liverpool. Yeah. They did the slum clearances in the 50s and 60s. They, they housed people there. And, you know, you live in Scotland where there's lots of these new towns, you know, Cumbernauld and places like that. Cumbernauld, beautiful. Often voted the most beautiful city in Britain. Well, yeah, but it bears no relation to Glasgow, which is where, you know, many of its residents originally located from. Yeah. Kirby would be the same. And Liverpool's full of inverse snobbery. There's a bit of, you know, looking down upon Kirby as being, uh, you know, the wild east of the city. You know, it's cut off and people are, you know, a bit backward and all that, which I don't think is true myself. But anyway, it is definitely remote from Liverpool. You know, it's at the end of a railway line. It's on the side of a motorway. And they were going to build, like, the biggest Tesco's in Britain with a football stadium attached to it. Sounds classy. It was just the worst idea ever. It was a terrible idea, but it was sold to us as, you know, you're getting a stadium for free blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we were given these images as fans by the club of, you know, what it would look like at night with all the all the, all things, the shoppers. You know, all, the, all the shoppers <laughs> and all the floodlights. And, you know, they said it draws its inspiration from FC Cologne's stadium. I mean, no, not the Maracanã or <laughs> San Siro. FC Cologne. So there you go. And, of course, when the Liverpool fans came for the Derby game, they'd all bring... Uh, Tesco bags, which they'd throw onto the pitch, you know, <laughs> and they'd sing the city's all ours. It really did seem like a retreat from who we are, from the club's core identity as the first and the premier club in, in in our great city. And it didn't happen, so that was that. It didn't happen, thank God. It was the stupidest idea ever. I mean, it was just 
ridiculous. Fast forward a bit, we'll go to February 2016. Suddenly, the investment that a lot of fans have hoped for that hadn't been there, even through this very stable period with Moyes, the, the next level investor. So you've got Farhad Mashiri, he comes in and, I mean... He burns his way through five hundred million pounds with disastrous managerial appointments in Ronald Koeman, who was uh, moved from the club that I support, Southampton, and I, he had my best wishes as he left, and, and he achieved everything I could hope for him at Everton. Um, Sam Allardyce, Marco Silva, Steve Walsh's director of football. I mean, we'll come on to Ancelotti; he seems to have got it right. But that's you know five hundred million pounds. He could have just had a bonfire. I was with you when the takeover happened. Remember, we were in Jura. Yeah, yeah. For the FIFA presidential election, where I was told by um, somebody that the regime in Bahrain wanted me dead. Yes. Yes. Well, we were on a pub crawl in Jura, weren't we, with the other journalists, and everybody's phones started going off. Yeah, yeah. And and people were coming to me saying, you know, what do you know about Farah Mashiri? I didn't know who he was. At the back of my mind, I knew he was a major shareholder in Arsenal. And, you know, he'd taken over Everton. It was just, there was no speculation. It had happened completely on the quiet. And, you know, Everton, which had been nominally up for sale for about 12 years at that stage, suddenly had a new owner. And I think probably what clinched the deal was that Bill Kenwright was allowed to remain as chairman, even though he was a minority shareholder. And Mashiri came in. I went to the first game when Mashiri was in charge. And looking back now in this weird period of coronavirus and lockdown and not being allowed in the stadium, it was probably the last great night it could have seen. Which night was this? The first game after the takeover? Not because of the takeover. It was an FA Cup quarterfinal yeah. against Chelsea. And Everton had not been great. You know, there was a loss of dissent against Martinez seemed like he was going to be sacked soon, irrespective of what happened with the takeover. And Lukaku just took the game by the score for the net. He scored, he scored one of the greatest goals I've ever seen at Goodison, where he cut in from the left, right in front of where I was sitting, and slalomed his way past about three Chelsea players before finishing. And then he scored again two minutes later. And I just remember the elation absolute elation going to the pub afterwards with my mates like the old days and I was unable to talk because I'd been I'd sheltered myself hoarse <laughs> and that was Mashiri's first night and he looked like the cat who got the cream <laughs> and then then there's the reality check you know he, he sacked Martinez you know Everson didn't win the semi-final although they should have done against Man United and just the season went went from bad to worse they got hammered in the target Anfield and you know he sat Roberto and brought in Ronald Koeman and he wasn't particularly well liked by people who worked at the club his brother Erwin who he brought in as a coach was by contrast but Ronald was seen as rather aloof he liked his time on the golf course and didn't really click he just didn't seem to get Everton he didn't seem to have the values that Everton fans think a manager should have and the football was dreadful. Now I know we want to talk about the future and what Everton is as a football club now and again new stadium plans a CEO who wants to take the football club forward genuine attempts to sort of make the club uh, you know more of an international brand and have an appeal which obviously in modern football means 
a way to monetize the club and therefore invest and reach the next level. We'll come on to that in a sec. But there is this baffling issue about where the power lies in terms of ownership. Farhad Mashiri is a long-standing business partner of Alisha Usmanov, who is the former co-owner of Arsenal and a significant sponsor at Everton. I mean, is the you know, he sponsors a training ground, doesn't he? Is it Usmanov sponsored now and various other money is funneled into the club through Usmanov? Well, yes and no. So the holding company, uh, USM, for Usmanov's wealth, it carries the initial of Usmanov, Strekov and Mashiri. And Mashiri, I think, has a 10% holding in that company. Right. Doesn't have the voting rights that Usmanov does have. Right. So are we in any doubt where the power lies at Everton in ownership terms? Is it Farhad Mashiri? In terms of how the club is run, I would say that Bill Kenwright still has a big say in the direction of things. Right. In terms of who's pulling the strings behind the scenes and writing the checks, I think there's possibly question marks. Alisha Usmanov was asked about this by the Financial Times, I think, at the start of last year, and said that he'd consider formalising uh, an arrangement with Everson. I think it probably suits the club and probably suits Usmanov for him to sit in the shadows, at least until they're decent, you know. Why have the hassle and the scrutiny when they're not winning things, frankly? Well, so you think he might formally step up and take an actual ownership stake or whatever at the point that they become successful? Yes, why would you want to... No, no, absolutely. But at the same time, he is associated. And there was a question mark, you know, he's business partners with Mashiri. Mashiri is worth two and a half billion dollars, I think. Although, like you said, he's already wasted 500 million on those succession of managers. I mean, even for someone with two and a half billion dollars, half a billion of it, that's a sizable chunk of change to sort of invest before you start going in the right direction. Whereas I think, I don't know what Usmanov's last wealth tally was but he's one of the richest billion. yeah 16 billion he's one of the richest 10 people in britain um he's one of the richest people in the world Nick. he's only 16 on the forbes list okay so there you go from my point of view i've always been interested in what he's sort of you know he clearly wanted to own arsenal that was his ambition to own arsenal and he cronky outfoxed him and he didn't so he got out of arsenal but there's still a question mark over what his motives are for me and what exactly his role is Anyway, right, let's go to the future. Let's kind of get to the nub of what are Everton? What is the point of Everton now? And where do you, as an Everton fan, think? You've got a new stadium at Bramley Moor Dock. You know, planning's approved. It's presumably now going to happen at some point. I don't know if you could fill us on a bit more on that. I know you sort of believe that the, the CEO now, Denise Barrett-Baxendale, she, she embodies the club's core values and is going to build a community-focused organisation. Uh, all this sounds good and promising and future stuff plans to crack America. So, you know, you've got a brilliant manager, you've got money being invested, you've got everything. What could possibly go wrong? I think it's harder now than it's ever been to break into the top four, to challenge for titles, because there's so much money in football, irrespective of whether you've got an oligarch or not. I mean, that just inflates everything. You know, clubs who don't have wealthy owners still have incredibly sophisticated scouting and, you know, use of data um, to acquire the best players. So you're up against that at every level, which, you know, 15 years you didn't have. I think mean, I mean, probably what gave David Moyes an edge when he was Everton manager was that he was always looking at new and interesting ways of measuring potential players that he could bring in um, 
but every single club in you know the top five leagues in in Europe now has that. So it's really really hard. I think what Everton have in terms of their chief executive, and you'll know this Nick because you've dealt with football chief executives for twenty five years. Most of them are just colourless drones, and you know they're interested in short term gain. You know, creating commercial deals that don't really bring value to anyone. You know, it might bring value to your bottom line, but do you really need to have an official coconut water provider as one of Everson's neighbours do? Ooh. No, I don't know. Everson appointed um, Denise Barrett-Baxter. She was previously deputy chief executive and head of the club's community charity, um, Everton in the community, which does an amazing job in, you know, Everton based in a very poor part of a poor city. Walton's one of the most underprivileged parts of Europe and Everton in the community went from being a sort of afterthought to being the heart and soul of the club in Denise's six, seven years in charge there. She has a very people-centred approach. She's very approachable. She looks at what the club means to the city and the wider community and I think she probably takes a long-term view on where Everton will be. So, for instance, on the ticketing, I think I pay roughly the same for my season ticket as I did 17 or 18 years ago. Blimey. What, 500 quid or something? About 550 quid, I think. My eldest son, as I mentioned before, has a season ticket. He's just turned 13. I think he pays £150 now. Previously, it was £100. Everton have one of the youngest fan bases match-attending fan bases in the country. And this is at a time when football is facing a looming demographic crisis. You know, young people are switching off. They're not interested in football as a TV spectacle. Or if they are, it is, you know, in short little bursts or they follow players. You know, that's the general trend. And I'm not saying that every kid is not interested, but, you know, the stats are quite alarming. I I think we've gone from... 23% 23% of under-18s who have no interest in sport to something like 45% in the space of a decade or so. Whereas Everton have been building up that young fan base and you know they want to be the local club. They are the local club when they publish stats about local fans when they started allowing supporters in after lockdown before Christmas. The clubs are only allowed to bring them in from the local areas. I think Everton had the most localised support in the country, whereas Liverpool had the least localised support. Can't resist a dig, can you, James? It's not a dig, it's it's fact. (laughs) So I think what Everton have been doing is quite astute. They've been building that fan base. People will spend money in the turnstiles um, for many years to come. And they'll be doing that in a new stadium at Bramley Moor Dock. When's it due to open? 2024. Okay. So we're talking on St. Patrick's Day. I don't know when this is going out, but um, the plans were approved about three weeks ago by the Liverpool City Council. Yeah. As a matter of course, they have to go to the uh, Secretary for State, Robert Jenrick, who's meant to respond within three weeks. Um, there is a risk that he calls a public inquiry into it, but it's not very likely. There was overwhelming support from the city council and members of the public in their submissions. Anyway, he's asked for a few more days to look at this. Since he gives the green light, I think they're literally ready to put spades into the ground and and start building. Yeah, Should be ready for the start of the 2024-25 season. 
So we've got three more years left at Goodison, which is going to be turned over into a community hub. They're going to build some council housing or community housing, as they call it now, on the old stadium. And what the club have committed to is to ensure that they keep a presence within that neighbourhood, which is, you know, it's probably going to face real economic strife once the club moves. It doesn't really have an awful lot going on there. Can I ask two questions to finish? Whenever to move into their new stadium, will Carlo Ancelotti still be the manager and what silverware will he have won by then? And secondly, will your son, the sixth generation Everton season ticket holder, see Everton win English football's top flight title in his lifetime? Uh, When Carlo Ancelotti manages Everton in Bramley Moore Dock, which I think he will do, he said he wants to. That would be a long reign, wouldn't it? Everton will have won at least one trophy. Okay. So it could be the Europa League, could be the FA Cup. I don't think it'll be the league title. Okay. And yes, I firmly believe they'll win the league title again. I mean, you know, if you'd ask the Man City fan 15 years ago if they could see their child winning the league title, they'd have probably laughed at you. But, you know, yeah. things change. Yeah. Empires don't last forever. I don't think there's any empire in English football at the moment. Thank you very much for listening to Football Uncovered Season 2. You can follow James on Twitter and, of course, you can follow Nick Harris at Sporting Intel. We'll be back with another episode very soon.